This is the God in All Things podcast, rooted in Ignatian spirituality and seeking the presence of God in the everyday. This week I'm sharing with you a three-part talk I gave last month at St. Anne's Church in Marietta, Georgia, called Cultivate Your Faith, Dig Deep and Bloom. If you haven't heard either of the previous talks on prayer and reconciliation, listen to those first. This final talk is on apostolic zeal. So we began our mission reflecting on prayer as a way to focus our priorities and to sort of till the soil of our relationship with God and to grow in intimacy. And we reflected on the work of reconciliation, which is not just about sin, but about making right our relationships with God and all of creation. And this was the work of Jesus, healing, forgiving, bringing people together in love and friendship, promoting the work of human dignity. And if you still have an image of God as up there and we're the hired hand working in the garden alone, just taking orders from the landowner, well, it's maybe time to challenge that image. One blessing of the spirituality that comes from St. Ignatius is that it brings God down to earth, sees God as as our co-laborer. We are co-laboring with God in the work of reconciling the world, of loving the world into wholeness. I imagine God and me kneeling down side by side in the dirt, messy, planting seeds, uprooting, watering. We're working together in this. God and me. So let's begin with another gardening metaphor from Matthew's Gospel. Listen, a sower went out to sow. And as he sowed, some seeds fell on the path, and the birds came and ate them up. Other seeds fell on rocky ground, where they did not have much soil, and they sprang up quickly, since they had no depth of soil. But when the sun rose, they were scorched, and since they had no root, they withered away. Other seeds fell among the thorns, and the thorns grew up and choked them. Other seeds fell on good soil and brought forth grain, some a hundredfold, some sixty, some thirty. Let anyone with ears listen. Here, I think Jesus is teaching his disciples how to become apostles. And what's the difference? Well, disciples are followers. The call to discipleship requires a radical shift in life. It's the initial moment of conversion where we drop our previous ways of being. It's when the Spirit gives us a new perspective, when we realize that there's wisdom in the words of Jesus. Discipleship is a good place to be 
because it's our first response as Christians. It's our first response to Christ's invitation. But then Jesus extends a deeper invitation to move from words and commandments to action. An apostle is one who is sent. We're no longer talking about the greatness of the good news. We're living it. We're no longer just talking about the virtues of the works of mercy. We're actually welcoming the stranger, caring for the sick, caring for the vulnerable and the stranger. And the apostolic stage of Christian life is not one-dimensional. It's a bold call to turn our words into actions and let our entire lives be apostolic. That is, letting our relationship with Christ affect how we live and move in the world. It's no surprise that Jesus' words of call radically shift from follow me at the beginning of the Gospels to go, therefore, and make disciples of all nations. Jesus' disciples needed to grow with him and imitate him before they could be mature enough in their faith to go out on their own as apostles in his name. His initial call was followed with a promise for that deeper call to apostolic action. I will show you how to fish for people. That was his promise at the beginning. In La Salette, Mary asked the children to make her message, Jesus' message, known, to go out and share the gospel, to communicate the beautiful Christian way of life. And that's, that's the Christian call, to go out, to get out. And for those who get caught up with the idea of mass being an obligation, I say, you're focusing on the wrong thing. Is that why you go to mass? Our encounter with God in liturgy, sacrament, and prayer is the tilling of the soil so that we can then go out to be dismissed to go out and to scatter the seed. We confuse the tilling with the planting. In the joy of the gospel, Pope Francis says, when evangelizers rise from prayer, their hearts are more open, freed from self-absorption, they are desirous of doing good and sharing their lives with others. So back to the parable of the sower. Jesus is telling his friends what they can expect. They're going to encounter rocky ground, thorns, and good soil. When they're scattering seed, there will be rocky ground, those who have no root, 
And at the first sign of challenge, growth ceases. There will be thorns, which are those who are overtaken by the distractions of the world. Again, no growth happens. And then there will be good soil, those who listen and hear and understand the good news and roots take hold and bear fruit. The garden is going to have difficult terrain to navigate. But how do we know how to navigate this terrain? How do we genuinely be evangelizers or apostolic without being a jerk? Three things. Prayer, appeal, and freedom. First, prayer. Francis again says, without prayer, all our activity risks being fruitless and our message empty. How can we scatter seeds if if we ourselves don't have roots? How can we share God's love if we don't fully trust in it? We must be good soil first. Not perfect soil. If catechists themselves don't have a solid spiritual foundation and loving relationship with God, how can they genuinely, authentically share the gospel with the children they're called to serve? If, as a parent, I don't cultivate and water my own garden, how am I going to teach my children to cultivate theirs? If a priest or lay minister doesn't know deeply Jesus Christ's radical love, how can they preach it to the people they minister to? Someone said to me the other day, how can you grow if you don't find time for contemplation, quiet, and solitude? When our focus is so much on action, we can go about our Christian lives haphazardly. But when we pause and remain quiet enough for long enough, we prayerfully settle into the context of our Christian lives. A God who wishes to share a redeeming love with all people. Let me repeat Francis's words. When evangelizers rise from prayer, Their hearts are more open. Freed of self-absorption, they're desirous of doing good and sharing their lives with others. And since prayer is ultimately a connection with the other, it, it naturally draws us out of ourselves, right? It reminds us that our lives are bigger than our own egos. And we find that we are made to share our gifts and share our whole selves with the world. The Jesuits talk about the importance of being a contemplative in action. It means that prayer is necessary to the work of the kingdom. 
Prayer is ultimately apostolic. It affects what we do in the world. It should affect all we do. And hopefully it makes us humble. The other day I was talking to someone about how a, a certain Christian social justice organization made evangelization part of their mission. Um, but it was, it was the kind of evangelization that basically meant proselytizing. The good work that they, they did um, was primarily for the sake of making Christians, not for primarily the sake of the good work. The Catholic perspective on caring for neighbor isn't about converting people. We love neighbor because that's what it means to be Catholic. When Jesus told his disciples to go out and baptize people of all nations, he wouldn't have understood baptism as admission to a new religion. Jesus didn't come to start a new religion. If you remember why John the Baptist baptized, it was a ritual call to conversion, a new way of living and being, a new way of loving. It was first and foremost a call to conversion, repentance, right? Which means change. Jesus was calling his disciples to be apostolic by word and witness. In sharing the gospel, they would be drawing people into the way. And that's what they would have referred to it as, the way. Not Christianity, but the way. The seeds planted, if good soil, would lead to a blooming conversion. But you need the humility that arises out of quiet prayer so that being an apostle doesn't mean being a jerk trying to convert someone. You're simply sharing the gospel with love and affection for your sisters and brothers. So that's prayer. The second element is appeal. When we live our Christian lives, does it seem appealing? When people look at us, what do they see? How do they see Christianity as a whole? Catholicism, even. Do they see people who are robotic, unfree, going through the motions? Or do they see loving people who are living lives of joy and goodness? Here's an example of how important it is to, to make our way of life attractive. My wife, Sarah, used to work at Providence College in Rhode Island, which is uh, run by the Dominicans. And she mentioned that there were some Dominican priests uh, who said, we don't have to impress women, so who cares if we get fat? And this Dominican sister on staff scolded them for saying that. It didn't make their vocation look attractive. <laughs> the reality is that religious life can be very joyful. I experienced that firsthand. 
Sarah and I run a, a marriage prep program at our parish, and we say the same thing about marriage. We have to make marriage look appealing. I once had a coworker who would often talk about marriage as being a ball and chain. He would say things like, happy wife, happy life. These kinds of phrases make the marriage commitment seem like a burden and all about pleasing the, pleasing the other to one's own discontent. And he was basically saying that he had to bow to all of his wife's wishes as if marriage stripped him of his personhood. And this was a guy who was a devout Catholic. He probably would have said he was quite pro-marriage, but I never once heard him say anything positive about marriage or about his wife. What kind of witness to marriage is that? Years ago, I had a girlfriend who was alive in her faith, and I would participate in her Bible study uh, once a week. And the people I met there, well, they just seemed on fire with their faith. And you could, you could tell it affected all they did. It gave, it gave them life. And at that point, my faith was, uh, was just going to Mass more out of obligation than anything. But I wanted what they had. These people had helped till the soil and plant seeds that eventually moved me to discern and enter religious life. These people, they didn't do anything to try to convert me. They just showed me that Christianity was an appealing way of life. It was attractive. I heard a story about something that happened on a silent retreat. Uh, there was an Episcopalian woman who, during Mass, went up to receive communion. And a, another retreatant, who was Catholic, knew she wasn't Catholic. And so in the silence, slipped her a note telling her that since she wasn't Catholic, she couldn't receive communion. Well, the woman didn't respond. And the next day, she went and she received communion again. But the other retreatant, incensed by this, wrote her another note that read, when are you going to become Catholic? And she wrote back, not today. (laughs) (laughs) When one is immediately met with judgment and confrontation, it does not look attractive. Now, I'm not here to comment on who can and cannot receive communion, but the Episcopalian woman's experience of the Catholic man was that he was a jerk. That was her first experience, and he certainly didn't make Catholicism look appealing the way he went about admonishing her. So that's the importance of appeal. The final element of of being apostolic and not being a jerk is freedom. For me, it was when Jesus told his apostles to uh, go into uh, a new town and share the good news with them. And if there were people who didn't welcome them or didn't wish to receive their message, to shake the dust from their feet and to move on. 
They didn't waste their time if they encountered rocky or thorny soil, soil that wasn't quite ready yet to receive their message. And that was fine. Jesus never made anyone an enemy. He was free enough to move on. And this freedom of his was found in his passion and death on the cross. His way had political consequences. And it did for the rest of the disciples um, who were killed for the gospel as well. True commitment to the mission comes in the darkness of the cross. But there's freedom there. The mission of sharing God's love sometimes falls on thorny soil. The soil that is filled with the things of the world. It's interesting that Jesus had a crown of thorns pressed onto his head. That crown represented the worldly things, unfreedoms, those things that brought him to the cross. On the La Salette crucifix, we see the symbol of the hammer representing those worldly things that drove Jesus to his death. But then we see the other symbol of the pincers, which represent the love and freedom that comes when the pincers remove the nails. And we can see who stayed at the cross and who didn't. Being apostolic is not easy. Being committed to the mission is not easy. St. Ignatius, in his spiritual exercises, offers a meditation called The Call of the King, where he asks us to imagine an earthly leader, someone who's charismatic and has a great project to change the world, to overcome oppression and poverty and climate change and so on. And the leader has a specific role for you where you can use your talents and gifts to make a real difference. And then you're asked to now imagine Christ as the one calling you to his project for the world. It's a beautiful and personal call. How can we not respond? Ignatius says, how could we not respond affirmatively to that? I used to teach high school theology, and I gave this meditation uh, to my students in the form of an email that came from a passionate leader uh, asking them to help change the world with them, and that there's a specific role set aside for, for them. And then I asked my students how they'd respond. Now, most of them responded positively for the call to help, but some were more resistant. Here's one of their responses. Dear passionate leader, have you lost your mind? Unless you have an army of people and the billions of dollars it would take to fund this, everything you're saying sounds like a utopian fantasy. In addition, how on earth am I supposed to do anything? I'm 15. I have a 10th grade education. Now, many of us, you know, might be hesitant to respond to such a call. Um, 
And the more I read my students' responses, um, I, I found three main reasons why one would not respond to such a call. And the first is, it's too big a job. Like that student said, bringing world peace and stopping violence and oppression is just too unrealistic. It's a utopian fantasy. Well, trying to do the seemingly impossible stops a lot of people from pursuing uh, dreams big and small. But Jesus told his disciples, for God, all things are possible. And this is God's project. It's true that bringing peace and justice to the world seems unrealistic when humans are so fallible and tempted to sin. But we know hearts are capable of change. People desire love and goodness. Deeply, they do. The disciples' ministry to different parts of the world changed hearts and minds, brought communities together, empowered others to continue this mission. It may also seem unlikely that I can help. And I certainly can't make a difference. Well, if we all say this, then no difference will be made. Yet Jesus called a group of people who may have seemed so plain and boring to themselves that they too may have asked that question. What's so special, though, about the call of the king is that God seeks to use our unique gifts. There is a specific role, no matter how small, for us. We're all different parts of the body, different functions that make up the whole. And these gifts that we have are required for the body to achieve its end, to achieve its purpose. It's unfair to assume that our unique ability or gift or skill can't make an important contribution to the whole project. We need to ask ourselves, what am I good at? What are the seeds I can plant? The second reason someone might might be hesitant to respond to the call of Christ is, I don't want to give up what I have. Now, the Christian way of life does require a lot of sacrifice. But if we want to be part of this mission, we we can't be complacent. And too often we are. I mean, Jesus asked his disciples to give up their family, their possessions, their former way of life. It was radical, but the call of Christ for us often means doing the mission in the context we already find ourselves in. At work, at home, among friends and strangers, in our communities. It requires the commitment of time and the sacrifice for other things that call for our attention, the thorns. The third reason someone might be hesitant to the call is the question of, what do I get out of it? One of my students wrote in response to the email, if I'm going to devote so much time and energy to this cause, 
I need to know what's in it for me. Do I get money or spiritual wealth? (laughs) Well, right after Jesus told his friends that all things were possible with God, our good friend Peter butts in and says, we've given up everything and followed you. What will there be for us? Oh, Peter. Jesus replies, Amen, I say to you that you who have followed me in the new age when the Son of Man is seated on his throne of glory will yourselves sit on twelve thrones, judging the twelve tribes of Israel and everyone who has given up houses or brothers or sisters or father or mother or children or lands for the sake of my name will receive a hundred times more and will inherit eternal life. But such an intangible kind of wealth that we have to wait for is not a reason enough for some to commit to Christ's cause. So there's this uh, lyric in a song by Tony Alonzo, uh, the song called Fresh is the Morning. This lyric uh, that I love says, Chosen as partners, midwives of justice, birthing new systems, lighting new lights. What a beautiful image of something new blooming. Our Christian way of life being apostolic, bringing people together in peace, bringing the light of Christ to the world. In Mark chapter 15, Jesus says, Go into all the world and proclaim the good news to the whole creation. The whole creation. Being apostolic doesn't mean that we are the answer to the world. That's not very humble. Rather, we are midwives facilitating the birth, the growth, the transformation of all creation, not just humans, all God's creation. And the invitation is always to co-labor, collaborate with God in this ongoing unfolding of creation. Creation didn't stop at the end of the sixth day. It's ongoing. And I love the the subtitle for this mission, Dig Deep and Bloom. We're we're not digging into parched soil. We're digging into the rich soil of God, sowing the seeds that leads to joy in in life with God. Life in God. That's all that's, that's all that's being offered. Life in God. And we take on this apostolic mission in humble ways, at our workplaces, at home, with strangers, with friends. Are you generous and kind to your customers or colleagues? Does your work give life or goodness in some way to others? 
How do you support and encourage the gifts of your spouse? What do you do when you encounter someone experiencing homelessness or someone who is sick or someone who lost a loved one? How are you bringing generous love to these people? Apostolic zeal should always be grounded in the joy of the gospel. As I said before, do we, do we make the gospel appealing to others? Do we live lives of joy that others witness? For too long, Catholicism, for one, has been seen as a joyless tradition about obligations and guilt and stoic nuns hitting knuckles. It's been seen as one of scandal and abuse and self-protection and power. It's been about getting myself to heaven rather than seeing salvation as a path of joy and love. For some, it has lost moral credibility. This is because the joy of the gospel has not been our blueprint for Christian living. We have been more distracted by the thorns of the world rather than the good soil around us. We've lost the playfulness of spirituality and the belief that we are an Easter people. Over and over and over again, Jesus said to the rigid and joyless, Woe to you! Where is your focus? Jesus asks. For which is greater, the gold or the sanctuary that has made the gold sacred? Jesus says. For which is greater, the gift or the altar that makes the gift sacred? Have we lost sight of the gift? In our witness to the Christian way, are we sharing the altar or the gift? This is not my idea, but Jesus's. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you tithe, but have neglected the weightier matters of the law, justice, mercy, and faith. Woe to you, scribes and Pharisees, hypocrites, for you clean the outside of the cup and of the plate, but the inside are full of greed and self-indulgence. The joy of the gospel has no woes. Co-laboring with God in the vineyard may be difficult, but it does not lack joy. Such laboring is humble work. It's the little ways that fill up hearts with the love of God, that lead people nearer to the people God made them to be. I love being a Christ follower. I love being Catholic. I love being part of a tradition and community that is at its core, its truest self, joy-filled, gospel-living, apostolically zealous, compassionately forgiving, 
and generously loving. It's because our God is joy-giving, compassionate, reconciling, and generous. This season does not have to be absent of joy. Lent is a time of refocusing, reprioritizing, rejoying, reconciling, reconciling, which means to bring together again. It's a resetting of our spirits in God's spirit and the spirits of our sisters and brothers sitting around here tonight and elsewhere. It's a renewing, a making new again. All this is preparation so we can truly be an Easter people of joy, love, and generosity. If you enjoy this podcast, please do me a favor and rate and review it on Apple Podcasts. It helps spread the word about Ignatian spirituality. And if you'd like to learn more about Ignatian spirituality, visit godinallthings.com.